It has been quite a while since we last had the privilege to spend some time in the book of Titus, and so I am very glad today to ask you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Our study today will be over verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2, but before we jump into it, I want to inform all of you that today's message, though it is aimed most specifically at younger men, that doesn't let any of you others off the hook. At first glance, you might think that if you're not a younger man, then this message is really not going to have anything to do with you because it's addressed specifically to the younger men. However, if you're thinking that, you would be oh so very mistaken. In fact, each of these groups that Paul is addressing are closely linked together and affected by the others. And that shouldn't surprise any of us who have an understanding of just how the church functions as a body and how the parts of the body are directly affected by each other. We learn all about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all about the parts of the body of Christ and how we each have different functions, but that every part is just as important as the next and that we are all linked together so that something that affects one member of the body affects the body as a whole. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 really sums it up quite nicely when it says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Furthermore, these different instructions to these different groups are all linked together in the text by words such as similarly, and words like likewise that you see in verses 3 and 6 of chapter 2. In fact, let's just read through verses 1 of chapter 2 all the way down through verse 8. And we'll be able to see just how Paul, though he is creating different categories of people, is also at the same time linking them together so that what he teaches to one group, he's actually teaching to all the groups. Listen carefully as I read through these verses and see if you can tell where he is connecting these things. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Likewise, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Paul begins with the older men and everything that he teaches by way of instruction to the older men is filtered right down into what he teaches to us about the older women. Those two, two teachings are, are linked together by this word likewise. You could actually read this. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. In the same way, the older women are to be reverent in their behavior, etc., etc. So you see that the word likewise is linking those two teachings together. 
the teaching of the older women and the older men. And it's the same when you come to the younger men. That section of the teaching is linked to the ones above it. It says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So in the same way as the older men and the older women and the younger women, the younger men now are told to be self-controlled. And you look at the list and you say, is that it? Paul certainly had more to say to the other groups. Why is he stopping short here? Well, actually, he's not stopping short here. There is more. But let's just look at what he's taught thus far to all the groups and recognize that all of these things are applying to the younger men as well. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Certainly, we can see the importance of these instructions for older men, but I hope that we can also see these instructions would apply and should apply to everyone. It's not as if the older men should be dignified, but no one else need bother with that. Or that the older men should be sober-minded and sound in faith and in love, but the rest of us can just let those things go. Paul starts with the older men because they are the leaders. And that is the place where you start when you want to get the trend established. But then he transitions to the older women and he begins with the word likewise. He does this so that even though he emphasizes different instructions for the older women, they are not left out of the first set of instructions that he's given to that first category, that of older men. Furthermore, though Paul gives a specific set of instructions to the older women, it is not as if those instructions don't apply to the rest of us. They do. It just so happens that Paul emphasizes these instructions to the older women. Can you imagine if he said, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Can you imagine if Paul said that to the older women and the other three categories were like, whew, glad we don't have to worry about that. It's not as if the older men can now be irreverent in their behavior and be slanderers and be given to much wine and then say to themselves, well, you know, Back in Titus, he said a lot to the older women about those things, but I say we get drunk and slander everybody because we're good. That's not the case, right? We know that. We know that even though Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, does in fact separate people into these four categories, that the teachings that he's given here are really for all of us. And so you may be wondering, if that's the case, if these instructions directly apply or at least in principle apply to us all, why did Paul go through the trouble of separating these categories out and giving different kinds of instructions to them? Why? And that is a very good question that the text doesn't address at all. So the best I can do is give you my opinion which I am happy to do. It seems to me that the Holy Spirit is giving us instructions to strengthen us where maybe we're the most vulnerable. Or possibly, maybe the Holy Spirit is giving us instructions where we can be the most effective. And that's not the case, 
I'm sure, with 100% of everybody in each of these categories, but that it is in a general way where some of our common weaknesses and vulnerabilities are, and possibly that these instructions are aimed and designed to hit us exactly where we function at our best as well. Now, I can't be dogmatic about that, and so if that doesn't make sense to you, you have my permission to just rip it right out of your head and fling it across the room. But that's how it makes sense to me. That's how I think about it. But whether or not you think about it in that way, Paul definitely does separate the church into these four categories, and he definitely does emphasize different instructions for these four different categories. That part is not debatable. And today we are landing smack dab on Paul's instructions that he wanted to specifically emphasize to the younger men. So the first thing we should do is to get our minds around the category itself. Who are the younger men? When we think of younger men, it seems to me like we generally begin somewhere in the late teens and we probably end somewhere in the late 20s or maybe 30s. But is that where Paul would be drawing the lines here? It's actually not where Paul's drawing the lines, and we know this from his description of the younger women. Remember, younger women were described by these statements, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so we see that the younger women are not just teenage girls or girls in their 20s, but that that category also includes women up to the ages where women can be and still have children that live in their home. So if you're here today and you're in your 50s, but you still have kids living in your house, take heart. You are a young woman. That's biblical. That's what it says. I'm not making this up. But that also gives us a clue as to who the young men are. And sure, they may be men that are just entering adulthood, just beginning to taste a little responsibility and independence, but it actually includes all the way up to older guys like myself, who though I am older, someone's snickering. (laughs) Though I am older, I still have young kids living at home. So for the time being, though I'm kind of right on the cusp, I am still a young man. So I got that going for me. So if you are male and you are entering your independence, or if you are at the point of independence, or if you're off on your own, making your own living, whether you're single or whether you're married, if you're in the ages where males can be and still have kids in their home, then these instructions are specifically toward you. And to the rest of you, don't think you can ignore them because by proxy, you're included in all this as well. So we see the audience, but what are the instructions? Well, let's start with the word likewise. And remember that it ties this list to everything above it. So we know that young men, as well as everyone else, need to heed the instructions that Paul is giving to all of these groups. However, Just as in the other categories, Paul does emphasize some very pointed and specific instructions here to the younger men. And the top of that list is to be self-controlled. By the way, if you take being reverent in behavior, which is what he says to the older women, if you take that as being self-controlled, 
then this instruction of being self-controlled is specifically aimed at all four categories. Do you think maybe the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us that we might not be as self-controlled as maybe we need to be? It would seem so. Being able to control yourself is a mighty power. Consider for a moment all the things you could accomplish if you could just control you. What would your life look like if you had the control of yourself to put into practice all the things that you have intended to do for so long but just haven't gotten around to it? Or if you could have the self-control to stop doing some of those things or all of those things that you've intended to stop doing for so very long, but you just haven't gotten around to it. What would your life look like if you had perfect, flawless self-control? What if you could have perfect self-control in the area of eating and working out? Let's pretend like I didn't say that. Let's just move right on. What if you had perfect self-control in the area of reading your Bible regularly or praying regularly, attending church or Bible study regularly? What about self-control when it comes to donating your time to ministry and investing yourself in eternal rewards? You know what I've discovered about myself? This is probably true about you. So listen, you can tell me later if it is. What I've discovered about myself is that I actually already know what I should be doing. I already know it. I actually already know what I should be avoiding. So if I know what I should be doing, and I know what I shouldn't be doing, but I'm not able to do and not do those things, why would that be? Well, it's because I don't have the ability to control me. Did you know that we are so very often spending our time and our energy running around trying to control everything under the sun that we cannot possibly control and then getting mad at how out of control everything is when if we would just put half of that energy into controlling ourselves, which, by the way, is the only thing on God's green earth you actually could control, then not only would we probably begin reaping the benefits of a life well-lived, but we would also lower our stress levels by at least half because we wouldn't have the energy to worry about all those things we can't control. Self-control, it turns out, is a very important thing. In Proverbs 16.32, it says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The message is clear. It is mightier to control yourself than it is to control others, even if that control is to the extent of a whole city of others. 
Yet how often are we much more focused on how we can bend the will of other people to fit our desires while totally ignoring our own inability to control ourselves. Self-control is really self-discipline. It is being able to make the best choice and then to stick to it under pressure, to stick to it even when it's inconvenient and even when it's downright difficult. If we could learn to do that, and by the way, we can learn to do that, then it would produce incredible victories in our lives. God is calling on young men to control themselves. Look at your life. See your situation and make the best, most godly choices that you can and then follow through on every decision. Be disciplined. Be strong. Be consistent. Be self-controlled. In Proverbs 25, 28, it says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. If you have no self-control, then you have no barrier between yourself and utter ruin. Self-control is that aspect of your life that protects you from harm. It protects you from your own foolishness. If you're an honest person who can honestly assess themselves, then you're going to quickly realize that if you were ever, God forbid, left to your own desires in such a way where you couldn't keep yourself from each and every desire that might in any given moment arise within you, then you would be most likely in prison or dead rather quickly. There may be many things that we could think of that would differentiate a child from an adult, but beyond any doubt, one of those things, and maybe the most significant of those things, would be self-control. Age has less to do with maturity than self-control does. A person who is 40 or 50 that has no self-control is more childish or immature than a teenager who does have self-control. And if you've ever known an adult with no self-control, it's a very ugly thing. It's often a very dangerous thing. Self-control is self-empowerment. Self-control is wisdom in motion. Self-control is safety for you and for those around you. Self-control is God-honoring. Self-control is required in this life and in the church. And in fact, in fact, the more you have of it, the more you can be used by God to complete the work that he has prepared and purposed for you. Young men are to be self-controlled. This is top priority. Not just because of its level of importance, but also because a lack of self-control is something that young men are vulnerable to. It's just so easy to not be self-controlled. It's just so easy to lack discipline and the ease of life without living, trying to control yourself can be 
so incredibly tempting. But young man, you must resist the temptation to do what you want in the moment. Instead, you need to aim your efforts with more foresight in mind. Control yourself now. Show some self-discipline now and maybe give up some momentary pleasure for a lasting future reward. This is Paul's first message to the young men. And maybe at first glance, you would think that this is his only message because Paul suddenly turns his attention onto Titus and begins to give Titus some very personal instructions. It might be upon your first reading of this passage that it seems like the young men have gotten off easy. Paul has given multiple instructions to the other three categories, and now it seems like the young men are just an afterthought. But is that really what's going on here? I don't think so. Paul continues to give instructions to Titus, who just so happens to fall directly into the category of young man. And so, though Paul is directing his aim more sharply at Titus, the young men are included in the following instructions as well. Paul says in verse 7 and 8, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So yes, this is a personal exhortation from Paul to Titus. That's for sure. But at the same time, this is a personal exhortation from the Holy Spirit to all young men in the church throughout the ages. So often we wonder what God wants from us. I think sometimes we like to pretend that we don't know what God wants from us or that God's been unclear. But is that really the case? Young men, listen carefully. Along with being self-controlled, God also expects you to be a model of good works in every way. And if that doesn't seem like enough, then this next piece should really make you squirm. He goes on to say, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, soundness of speech. Just in case you missed the hidden message that the Holy Spirit just gave us, let me let you in on it. You are to be a teacher. Now, wait a minute, where did it say that? Well, it says that in the statement, in your teaching. The passage is assuming that you're a teacher. So guess what? You're a teacher. Now, maybe you're not a teacher in some formal capacity, but just because you may not be a teacher in some formal capacity, do not think for one moment that you are not a teacher because you are a teacher. That's not a question. That's a statement. The only question is, are you a good one? God is all about utilizing every one of his children in some capacity. And certainly one of the ways that he does this is by putting people in our lives that can learn from us. You have gifts and experiences that are uniquely your own. And so because of this, there are some things that only you can teach to someone else. God wants you to be a willing teacher, and he wants you to teach with words and with actions. 
Paul tells Titus to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works. The word model in the Greek is the word tulos. It can mean model or pattern or example or the form of something. We are to be, to all who are watching, the form or the pattern or the example of what it is to live rightly. As you are going through your normal everyday life, you are to live in a pattern of righteousness that can be seen by others and copied. Ask yourself, can the people around you copy your life's patterns and in so doing, walk closer to God? Can someone, anyone, who just happens to come in contact with you mimic the kind of person that they see you to be and in so doing, glorify God by copying you? Can the people around you talk about the kinds of things that you talk about and in so doing, glorify God? Can the people around you use the same words that you use and in so doing, glorify and honor God? Can the people around you treat members of the opposite sex the way they see you treating members of the opposite sex and in so doing, glorify and honor God? Who's watching you? Who's learning from you? I can guarantee you someone is. Someone is. And the scary thing is you may not even know who it is. Your life is touching all the lives around you and affecting every single life it touches in some way. Are you affecting the lives around you to the glory of God? Or are you affecting the lives around you and disgracing the God that you claim to serve? That's a tough question to deal with. You are a teacher, and you are teaching someone just by the way you live your own life. Honor God by the way you teach others to be. You see, your life, it's not about you. We like to think that it is. We really like to think that it's about us. We like to think that the important things about ourselves are things like our victories, and our adventures, and our pleasures, and our good looks, and our talents, maybe even our incredible stories. But really, the most important thing about you, if you're really wanting to know, is how you affect other people to the glory of God. That is the most important thing about you. Everything else will burn. When Christ said that we should store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, that's what he's talking about. Are you investing your best qualities in the lives of other people for their good and for God's glory? Are you living your whole life for your sake? Because if you're doing that, you miss the whole point of having a life to begin with. You are a teacher, and there are people watching and learning from you every day. What are you teaching them? 
I hope you're teaching them integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. In the Greek, those words hold meanings that are very closely linked together in much the same way as they are in the English. They're communicating things like truth and vulnerability and sincerity and honesty, genuineness and wholeness. Paul is saying you need to act in a manner that is worthy to be imitated, and at the same time, you need to have a genuine, truthful, and sincere message to talk about. You need to live out the gospel in your everyday life for anyone who is watching, and you need to clearly speak about the gospel in truth and sincerity for anyone who might be listening. When someone is watching you live, they ought to see your love and commitment to Christ in your attitudes and in your actions. And if someone is listening to you speak, they ought to be able to hear your love and commitment to Jesus Christ by the words you use and by the messages you verbally convey. Now, all of that is really just a very general sense of what needs to be going on in your life, but we could also take a very specific approach. And let me show you what I mean. In general, as you live and talk, people should see Christ in everything you do and say. If you're golfing, it ought to be what it would look like if Christ were golfing. If you're playing basketball, it ought to be what Christ would look like if he were playing basketball. If you're talking about cars, then you ought to sound like whatever it would be Christ would sound like if he was talking about cars. If you're talking about other people, then it ought to be whatever Christ would sound like if he was talking about other people. And that's a very general sense about what this is talking about. But if you want to get specific, then you need to know that you need to be occupying your time doing things that Christ would absolutely and specifically be doing. There's nothing wrong with playing golf, but Christ might not be playing golf if he were here today. There's nothing wrong with playing basketball, but if Christ were here today, he might not play basketball, right? Might not. But there are absolutely some things that if Christ were here today, he would be doing, no question about it. If Christ were here today, no question about it, he would be serving others. He would be doing that constantly. He would be ministering to those in need almost nonstop. If Christ were around today, he might talk about cars sometimes. He might talk about iPhones. He might talk about people or current events. But one thing he would absolutely, beyond any shadow of a doubt, be talking about is God. Beyond any shadow of a doubt, Christ would be talking about sin and forgiveness and loving others. You know what else Christ would be doing? Absolutely. He'd be attending church. He'd be going to Bible studies. He'd be all about the work of the church in the world. In fact, he would be very active in all of the ministries in the body of Christ. So as you go through your life, you should live as Christ would live in a very general sense. But you had better be also living as Christ would live in a very specific sense as well. As you live each day, you need to be occupying some of your time 
doing things that Christ absolutely and without any doubt would be doing. And you need to be saying things that Christ would absolutely and without any doubt be saying. It's not enough just to be a good person in a general sense. But you also need to be a very Christian person in a very specific and observable way if you are to follow these instructions in Titus chapter 2. And that is how you can, as the text says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. That's how you do that. So young men, you need to be self-controlled. That is to say, self-disciplined enough to be constantly doing those things in your life that you already know you should be doing. And you need to be doing them when it's easy and convenient. And you need to be doing them when it's painful for the moment. Because we always need to be forward-thinking and willing to invest our lives today in what will result in God's glory tomorrow. It takes great self-control to do that. On top of that, you need to be always aware that God is using you as a teacher in the life of someone else. And so you need to take this God-given task very seriously. You need to make this a priority. That if someone were to mimic you, if someone were to copy you, in so doing, they would be living a life that glorifies and honors God. This is very similar to what Paul's instructions are to Timothy in 2 Timothy. It's verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Paul is saying, copy me. Do what I do. Say what I say. That's the kind of teacher that we're all called to be. Be that person who could be copied. And if somebody did copy you, and copy how you live, and copy how you talk, that that person that's copying you would be living an outstanding Christian life. Finally, I want to draw your attention to the reasons behind all of these things. Paul's mentioned it now twice in these instructions to these groups of people that make up the church. He says it first in verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. The same idea is given in verse 8. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We need to be constantly aware of the fact that as a church, we represent Christ to the world. We're called to be the body of Christ. If the church is doing it, then the body of Christ is doing it. I'm speaking of the church corporately, and I'm speaking of the church individually. It matters what the church as a whole is up to. And it matters what individuals of the church are up to. Both of those things matter because those are the things that Christ is up to. All of these instructions that Paul is giving to each of these categories of people within the church are vitally important because these are the things that if we will do them, we will be performing for God at our optimal level. 
we will be doing everything that God would have us to do for his glory, and we will be saying everything that God would have us say for his glory. In short, we will be being all that God in Christ has purposed for us to be, and we will be accomplishing all that God in Christ would have us to accomplish. And that brings me to my last point. And I'd like to frame my last point with a, with a question. The question is this. What is the main reason that the church exists on this planet? Now, there could be plenty of reasons that we would give. There are plenty of reasons we could give, plenty of correct reasons that we could give as to why the church is here and now. One of them would be to praise God. If the church were not here, who would be praising God? So we're here to do that, no doubt. Certainly the church is here to do other things as well, other things like glorify God, honor God, even obey God, or enjoy God, or give thanks to God, or love God. All of those answers are totally correct, and following these instructions in Titus chapter 2 will help us to do all of those things, and that's good. However, all of those things are things that we will be doing in heaven. Not only will we be doing those things in heaven, but we will be doing them much better than we're doing them now. I mean, we can praise God now, and we can thank God now, and we can glorify God now, and enjoy Him now, and love Him now, and obey Him now, but we'll still be doing all of those things in heaven. And not only will we be doing those things in heaven, we'll be doing those things perfectly in heaven. Now, are we doing any of those things perfectly now? No, we actually are not. And even so, all of those things are things that the church should be doing now. And even though following these instructions in Titus will in fact help us to do them, I would say that there's still another thing that's even more significant at least for now, that these instructions will help us do. This one thing is a purpose that we now have at this very moment that we will never have in heaven. Can you guess what it is? Evangelism. You see, God's primary purpose in keeping the church here is to evangelize the lost world, to bring sinners into a right relationship with God through Christ. Think about it. If God wanted perfect praise and thankfulness and honor and obedience and fellowship and love from us right now, what would he do? He would take us immediately into heaven. That's what he would do. He would take us to heaven immediately. In heaven, all of these things we will be doing for God, and we'll be doing them perfectly, all of them but one. In heaven, we will never again evangelize the lost, because in heaven, there will be no lost people. Everyone will know God. Everyone will be saved by the blood of the Lamb. This life is the only life and the only opportunity to tell others about the saving work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the only time and place in all of human history 
when salvation is offered. Salvation is not offered in the next life. It is appointed for man once to die. And then the judgment, we read that in Hebrews, all sinners, all rejectors of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness will be forever excluded from heaven. So there will never be a chance to evangelize again after this life. So why am I saying this? Because if we want to function at our optimal level as a church when it comes to evangelism, then we better be following closely the teaching that Paul has given us here in our selection of Scripture. The older men had better be temperate, self-controlled, worthy of respect and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. The older women, likewise, better be reverent in the way they live, not slandering others and not addicted to much wine. They better be teaching what is good. The younger women had better be loving their children. They'd better be loving their husbands and be self-controlled and pure and kind, busy at home and subject to their own husbands. The young men had better be self-controlled. They better be setting a good example and doing what is good. They'd better be teaching with integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech. And if all of that, if all of that is going on in the church, if the family of God is doing all of those things, then the watching world will have nothing bad to say about us. All they will have is an example of a group of people who trusted in Christ and were transformed by his power into a community of otherworldly people. This is the best evangelism tool that there is. The church functioning correctly is the best evangelism tool that there is. We wonder what form our evangelism should take. Is there some method or some program that we could enact that would reach the world better? If you want to know, or if you want people to believe that the gospel has the power to save, then the best way to do that is to constantly be parading in front of them a whole mess of people that have been radically, dramatically, and undeniably transformed by the power of the gospel. This is what we are called to be. And this is hard evidence to refute. We believe that Christ is the only Son of God, the creator of the universe, and that he came, he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross to pay the debt of sin that we owe to God, and that God raised him from the dead, and that he ascended into heaven, and that he is even as I speak at the right hand of God in heaven, ruling the entire universe. If we really believe all of that, then all of that is going to have a mighty transformative effect on us in every conceivable way. 
if the watching world hears our message but perceives that it has had no real effect on us, why on earth would they buy into it? However, if they hear our message and they see the evidence of transformed lives all living out these instructions given to us here in Titus, then they will have the message of power combined with the evidence that the power that message claims to have is real. Let us live a life like that. Let us live these lives that we are called to live. Let us be these people that we are called to be. Let us be instruments of God to evangelize a world desperate for the truth. And to do that, we need to speak the truth and we need to live the truth. And in order to do those things, we need to be all about following these instructions that are so very clearly given to us right here in Titus chapter 2. Let's do that. And now let's pray. God, we thank you for these instructions. We thank you for the power that these instructions can have in our lives through the Spirit. We pray, God, that you would make us people that desire in our hearts to live out these things in every way that we possibly can. Make it our life's mission to be these kinds of people. Make it our greatest joy to obey you in these specific ways that we would be able to reach the world for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.